being flexible also means saying no sometimes. Hi, thanks for listening to Doorknob Comments. I'm Farah White. And I'm Grant Brenner. We are psychiatrists on a mission to educate and advocate for mental health and overall well-being. In addition to the obvious, we focus on the subtle, often unspoken dimensions of human experience, the so-called doorknob comments people often make just as they are leaving their therapist's office. We seek to dispel misconceptions while offering useful perspectives through open and honest conversation. We hope you enjoy our podcast. Please feel free to reach out to us with questions, comments, and requests. Hi, this is Farrah White here with my doorknob comments co-host, Dr. Grant Brenner. Thanks so much for tuning in today. Um, we are going to talk about interpersonal problems um, and how they are solved. And I think this is something that we give a lot of time and energy to dealing with. And we're going to explain some of the research just in the hopes that when we understand ourselves and how we relate to different situations, it can you know, cause us less distress and really benefit us and our relationships in the long term. Or how people try to solve them. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think it's interesting. I mean, you brought up some research. I'm not sure what exactly got you thinking about it, but that they were really able to learn a lot about how people's attachment style, which is something that we've, you know, talked about in other episodes, can sometimes inform how people approach these interpersonal conflicts. Yeah. Attachment style, that's a really hot topic nowadays. Mm -hmm sort of yeah. across the boards. Do you think that people want to know their attachment style? Like if, if you're working with someone therapeutically, are there ever mm -hmm. times where you help people understand how they behave with others through the lens of attachment? Or do you mainly leave it um, implicit? A lot of these theories are very, very helpful in that they under help us understand ourselves. But I try to stay away from the idea that even something like attachment style, which is supposed to be, let's say, determined by our earliest relationships to our caregivers, I think, and you know, we have the secure attachment, which is really the healthiest one, right? But there are ways that even people who are securely attached can feel avoidant or can feel anxious in a certain relationship. So yes, I think it's helpful to understand our attachment style, but only if we're able to sort of be aware that, hey, this relationship is making me feel really nervous. I never know if this guy is going to call. And that's not usually how I am when I'm getting to know someone, right? So those deviations are just as informative as, let's say, you know, what we know about ourselves consistently. So attachment style varies from relationship to relationship and situation to situation. I think a lot of times people are interested in their attachment style as it pertains to intimate relationships, typically romantic, mm -hmm. sometimes familial, less commonly in the workplace. Yeah. And then, of course, it's part of therapy. Exactly. So that is where these things really come out and can be discussed. You know, it is connected to how we deal with any interpersonal conflict. But what you were looking at when you wrote these articles, it seems like you were really interested in the way that people sort of handle things routinely. Well, that was one thing that I, I really liked about the research that I came across because 
instead of looking at a person's attachment style as an individual, they based it on attachment style and they based it on another model of personality, which we can talk about. Mm-hmm. To look at the strategies that people use when there's an interpersonal situation, when there's a situation, as they say, when something isn't isn't going the way you want, how do we approach it? And yeah, people in general who are more secure approach things more adaptively. And people who have problems with their attachment and feel insecure tend to use maladaptive patterns mm-hmm. and may even leave themselves susceptible to problems like being taken advantage of, for example, or sabotaging relationships by being too withdrawn. The first type is the healthiest one, is the flexible adaptive. And that's characterized by a sort of openness and agile way of handling conflict, right? And it is associated with people who are securely attached. I think it makes sense that, you know, when people are are open and looking at things just with curiosity or compassion that they'd be less distressed and more likely to be able to handle things. Yeah, I, I agree and I think implicit in the flexible adaptive approach is having a very good understanding of one's own needs and where the boundaries are with other people. Mm-hmm. I think there's a common misconception that being flexible sometimes means compromising too much. It's a slippery slope sometimes. Uh, Yeah, I think that there's being flexible in these different ways, right? One example that I can think of, like, let's say a salary negotiation, maybe someone who's flexible, you could interpret that as, okay, well, they're not going to negotiate as well, but if they're really flexible in all the right ways, I would imagine that that's someone who can say, all right, well, if I can't get, you know, the base pay that I'm expecting, maybe I can be compensated in other ways. And that person might negotiate for more vacation or something because they're not getting hung up on the sort of negative aspects of, of the negotiation or there, there are not as many bad feelings, right? What would the negative aspect be? You know, I'm worth X amount of dollars a year. And if they can't pay me that, then it's an insult or maybe even just, you know, deriving some meaning that that isn't really there, right? Because it's just business. So having some kind of emotional reaction that distorts or strongly biases the way the negotiation is perceived Mm -hmm. so that it's it's seen sort of as being disrespectful or insulting or seeking to take advantage of rather than being understood as equitable business arrangement where both parties are presumed to be able to advocate for themselves without taking things personally. Yeah. Do you think there are other ways in which like the flexible adaptive type of resolution, you know, something more intimate, like relationships, either family relationships or romantic relationships, friendships? Yeah, certainly. I think the part that's harder to see is that being flexible also means saying no sometimes. Mm -hmm. And being adaptive means sometimes not being adaptive. In, In personal relationships, this happens a lot. I think even more so, or in in different ways at least, 
than in, in, in business relationships. Yeah, I think it's important to distinguish. I know that we want to stick with talking about this type, but I do think that it's important to distinguish being flexible and adaptive from being exploitable or subservient, right? So being flexible and adaptive might look like finding ways to get together with friends where everyone is comfortable, you know, especially with COVID and everything, people have different levels of things that they're comfortable doing or not doing. But when we, let's say, know what our limits are and can find a way to connect with others who might be either more relaxed or maybe more stringent, I would say that's a more like flexible, adaptive. You always bring it back to the same dynamic, I think. Really? Like one, one party is laid back and the other is <laughs> more, um, what's the word you always use? I don't know, uptight. Uptight. I can't help it because I'm just... You know, yeah, always, you always bring it back to that. <laughs> do you think that the uptight person is, is less flexible and adaptive? Or do you think it's ever the uh, laid back person actually, who's kind of rigidly laid back so much so <laughs> that they expect everyone to, you know, behave the way they do and but yeah. tell themselves that they're very flexible and laid back. Mm-hmm. When's the last time you saw the big Lebowski? Oh, you know what? Uh, that was just recently watched in my in my household. It was recently yeah. watched. Yeah, I can't. <laughs> but I can't you, really. I, I can't really follow it. <laughs> Someone watched it. Well, the main yeah. character is played by Jeff Bridges, and he mm-hmm. he's the dude. Okay. And the premise of the movie is that he's like super mellow. Mm-hmm. He's not. He doesn't work, and he gets confused because his name Jeff, not Jeff Lebowski. Mm-hmm. I forget his his, his okay. first name in, in the movie is the same name as this very wealthy guy whose wife is in hot water with some mm-hmm. shady characters and they come looking for money and the dude they're harshing his mellow because they, they um, <laughs> have broken into his apartment and they rough him up is mm-hmm. a case of mistaken identity but the point is that it's a real challenge throughout the movie to his very mellow philosophy because people push him too far. And he reveals, you know, he says at one point he went to college, but he spent most of his time protesting and sit-ins. Mm-hmm. So you know that somewhere inside of his mellowness is the capacity to really put his foot down right. when things aren't as chill and mellow as, as he thinks they ought to be. Right. And of course he lives in a world where as long as nothing disturbs him, then he can maintain that kind of illusion mm-hmm. and keep people around him who are ostensibly more chill. Though his best friend who is a Vietnam vet uh, played by John Goodman is any, anything but chill. I would say an extreme example. So it, it's, it's sort of relative, mm-hmm. you know, flexible, adaptive, somewhat context dependent. It varies from person to person, mm-hmm. but what happens when there's a problem, right? This is right. about interpersonal problems and you're trying to compromise and what if one person's idea of being flexible and adaptive does not match the other person's idea, but they're both convinced that they're right? <laughs> who, 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 who decides? Who's yeah. the judge? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know, but I think that that's probably the distinguishing feature is that both people can work it out, right? They, they can, but that, that's when you really see some of these other patterns emerge, mm-hmm. right? It's relatively easy to be flexible and adaptive when everyone's on the kind of the same page mm-hmm. 
But if you think you're being flexible and adaptive and you're feeling pretty secure, but it's not working, then that's a problem that it's not working. And then it tends to bring out more of the insecurity. Or the hostility, right? If we think we're being flexible and handling things properly and you know the other person is not reciprocating or they're not bending, right? It might feel like the other person is testing you. Yeah. They're not going along with what you want. Maybe you feel flexible, but the other person experiences the other the other person is controlling. Maybe. And they're pushing back a little bit to see if the person will remain sort of even keeled and flexible and accommodating. And then you start to see patterns of interpersonal problem solving come out. Right. Right. Am I going to be abandoned? or not, for example. One of the ones you mentioned is this hostile withdrawn response, mm-hmm. which you know is often comes across as passive aggressive. The other person doesn't respond to a text message right. and you, you quote unquote know that they're doing it on purpose. Right, and they start think, trying to guess what other people's intentions are. But I think it's really important to note that this kind of attitude, I guess, towards other people is really fear-based and it's really rooted in this worry that that person is um, going to abandon us. So maybe we need to withdraw first because that way we don't have to feel the pain of rejection. When these more maladaptive qualities come out, we have a choice, right? And one is that we can be just as hostile right back and meet the person wherever they are. We can adapt in a way where we become, I guess, more subservient or pleading or desperate for things to work out. Or we can just look at it and say, well, this person is expressing some sort of an unmet need. They're uncomfortable with the way the conversation is unfolding. I don't know exactly how people need to think about it to maintain their own like stability, right? That's tricky because on one hand, you might be saying, well, try to empathize and be compassionate. Mm -hmm. But then, yes, that makes a lot of sense. But at what point is that going overboard, trying to figure out what the other person's sort of real motives and intentions are, is a way of being overly involved and uh, encouraging behavior and, and where do you start being self-compassionate and saying, mm-hmm. okay, this person really isn't coming through for me. Mm-hmm. And I'm kind of still interested in why that might be, but because I'm not getting my needs met, it's become more clear to me what my needs are mm-hmm. because I'm feeling more and more deprived. And then people have varying degrees of success adaptively meeting their own needs. A lot of times it's not that smooth a process. It's more like a rupture of some sort, right? People all of a sudden realize something isn't right for them. And then they may, as you said, they may suddenly withdraw themselves, even though they were trying to respond in what felt like a more compassionate, flexible, and adaptive way. Mm -hmm. But that can end up, again, going overboard. Definitely. I think it's up to us to know where our limits are, right? 
So just because someone says, oh, why are you being so uptight about this? Doesn't mean I think we change our attitude or our beliefs. Well, what do you think about name calling? Because that's almost like name calling, like don't be so uptight. Um, mm -hmm. Is that a form of gaslighting? Well, that's one of the things that's really interesting to me because I think if you read the self-help literature, number one, a lot of times it's focused on the individual. So there's a huge amount written about like the dark triad personality, mm -hmm. people who are Machiavellian, narcissistic, psychopathic, people who are exploitative, you know, users, exploiters, abusers, and there's very justifiably a real caution about blaming people who are victimized. Blaming people who get exploited is very problematic. Mm -hmm. At the same time, which makes it really difficult, we know that people who have been mistreated as kids, for example, who have been neglected or abused are more likely to get into emotionally unhealthy relationships or, or worse in the future, depending on how they were parent, their parents treated them or whatnot. Mm -hmm. And yet that's not the same as blaming the person you know, using self-awareness to better meet one's own needs compassionately is very different from feeling pathologized and told that something is, you know, secretly your fault. And so I, I approached the last interpersonal problem solving profile, you know, with a lot of caution because it's called exploitable subservient. Mm -hmm. And yet in some ways, I think it is the most informative one and the most useful one for a lot of people who find themselves more often than they would like getting into situations where they regret being taken advantage of, mm -hmm. where they're confused about how they got into another quote unquote bad relationship right. or why they aren't getting a promotion or why they fell for an internet scam which they immediately realized was a scam. Yeah, but I think that goes into this idea of, oh, people can sort of understand these patterns, but then how do we change them? The intellectual understanding is useful, but it doesn't always make it change. Right. There has to be some kind of like emotional connection or mm -hmm. it has to rewire the, the brain in some ways. Yeah, or, you know, one thing that I like to, bring up a lot is to put in sort of these hard stops. Um, like for example, if you log off at seven o'clock and you don't check your phone, um, you know, after hours, then nobody's going to ask you to do something that's, you know, going to keep you up all night. Right. Because you're just not available. But Over those, time. Right. Right. But those things feel really uncomfortable to someone who, you know, in order to just maintain their own safety or survival have had to accommodate everyone else their entire lives. Accommodate other people to their yeah. own detriment or at their exactly. own expense. And and they they often become deaf or blind, right? Or mm -hmm. it, otherwise emotionally numb. So there's all kinds of ways that I think of this as, as self-gaslighting, where we, yeah. for survival reasons, have learned to ignore certain often obvious warning signs 
or we do things that are self-defeating and we're kind of aware of it, but we don't make the change, even though we know what change would be helpful. Mm -hmm. I, I can give a simple example from something in my personal life, which is having a, a, a pet cat. Mm -hmm. And cats are notorious, right? I hear this from tons of people. And cats go where you don't want them to go. And they, they do stuff that you don't want them to do. They knock stuff down. They bother you while you're eating. And the obvious thing that a lot of people do is that they feed their cats on top of the table while they're having dinner. And then they get angry at the cat for jumping up on the table during dinner. And they don't do what you're saying, like which is make a rule that mm -hmm. you, you only reinforce that behavior that you want, like feed the cat on the floor right. and not on the table. But then what people do, which is the most fascinating thing about cats, is then they start ascribing all kinds of motives to the cat. Yeah. And in reality, usually they're just conditioning the cat to do something they don't like and then kind of forgetting that they set it up that way. Yeah, but do you think that that people do that? They're conflicted. They want their cat uh, on the table or they want to be able, no, you don't think? I think it's unusual for people to be unconsciously motivated to okay. be self-sabotaging. I do think it happens. Uh -huh. I think usually it's more innocent than that. Okay. So I think we like to ascribe motives like that to mm -hmm. ourselves and others. It's called the fundamental attribution error mm -hmm. that we psychologize things more often than is accurate. So, you know, the classic experiment is if you show people a picture of three dots on a computer screen mm -hmm. and one dot sidles up to the other two dots and then one dot like slides off the side of the screen. If you ask them to tell a story, people have no problem at all making up a story like, well, the two dots that were there were friends. And then the one dot that came up, you know, one of them didn't like, and so they left. Yeah. So I'm very cautious about ascribing unconscious okay. intention. We okay. do that as psychoanalysts, you know, we err on the side of doing that because it helps us to understand when there is meaning there. But I think a lot of times it comes from self-contradiction, which isn't intentional or desired. Okay. A lot of people are self-contradictory, for example, without, I think, being hypocritical. Can you give an example of that? I think a lot of times it, it does come from early developmental experiences. Let's <laughs> say, you know, you had a primary caregiver who was very hot and cold and yeah. used love conditionally. And so you don't think about what that means, particularly as kids, because most kids don't develop a refined understanding of their mm -hmm. parents. Maybe later in life, they look back and they say, at the time, I didn't realize it, but my parents had issues. Right. And so they internalize those contradictions, becomes part of who they are, but they're not doing it on purpose. They just right. absorbed it developmentally. Yeah, I think that's that not sense. a very concrete example, but I, I think it's, okay. I think most everyone is self-contradictory. Mm -hmm. One of the most self-contradictory things I think is that we often tell ourselves a story about ourselves, which is that we're not self-contradictory when we are because people like to have like a, a sense of self, which is mm -hmm. not hypocritical. But if you right. take it, you know, as an assumption that we're inherently self-contradictory, it's a very different way of thinking about oneself. If 
that idea is troubling. Uh, so, I mean, that's like a bit of a digression, but I think it's related to using being too accommodating mm -hmm. or too deferential as a way to deal with someone who is upset. Sometimes it's useful though. Yeah. Customer I... service will do that a lot. If you're mad, they become like very deferential. But of course, it's it's in a very restricted setting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And maybe that customer service person is trying to evoke some sort of sympathy or, you know, compassion. I, I would imagine that they're sort of trained to de-escalate in these different ways. And there's probably, you know, you would know more about this than I would, but um, different tactics that they employ to try to, I guess, placate the disgruntled customer, right? So ex exhibiting vulnerability, mm -hmm. let, let's say you, you had a parent who gets angry or you have a, a friend who's angry and controlling Mm -hmm. and is intimidating or coercive and you get into the habit of placating them right. and then you know like the cat perhaps they get the message that they can do what they want and then it's a two-person process right it takes two to tango yeah. and so over time the relationship develops into a situation where one person is exploiting the other person mm -hmm. the other person might not be aware they're being exploitative or or maybe they are in, mm -hmm. in a sense it doesn't matter and the person who is using the exploitatable subservient problem solving approach to the relationship problem is likely becoming more and more resentful right i think we see this you know like employee employer relationships we also see it in friendships right? Sometimes the dynamic is that like a bossy kid, for example, will befriend a kid that gets easily bossed around because those dynamics can fit together in this way, right? Until the, the kid who's bossy might demand that the friend do something that they don't want to do. But a lot of times people can exist in these relationships without any problems, coming to the surface, right? Right. Well, I, I think the point is that that exploitable, subservient style can, can work for a long time. Mm -hmm. But it, it requires that the person be less attuned to their own needs. Right. And, and so, for example, I, I've seen this so many times. Of course, people get scammed more easily than, than anyone would like to be. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times we ignore little warning signs. You might think something is fishy about an email that you got. Maybe the logo looks a little funny, but the offer might seem very enticing or it, they might be triggering some kind of like obedience response where you just automatically respond the way you're supposed to because they evoke some fear that you owe money or something bad will happen. Essentially triggers like primitive responses like like brainstem level reactions and it takes the like the frontal cortex the the thinking part of the brain offline and so you might notice that you feel suspicious that phone number didn't look quite right or the logo didn't quite look right but in, people engage in this sort of micro self deceit or they ignore their their 
their spider sense, their intuition, mm -hmm. or you meet someone at a party and they start making mean jokes and you kind of ignore that you feel uncomfortable with it. And when they ask you out later, a part of you is going, gee, I don't think they're that nice, mm -hmm. um, but gee, they're really handsome or they're really funny or you know something charismatic and you ignore like your better judgment. And then you're saying in situations like that, sometimes it's helpful for people to have a set of rules that they follow ahead of time. Right. And, and to be practiced at getting out of situations that are not comfortable. So my favorite thing, which is pretty easy to do, is to say, I'd love to, but can I think about it? And that applies to everything that we need to say no to, but can't say no to. Ideally, we would be able to say, no, I just don't feel a connection. No, I don't have the bandwidth uh, to take on this project. No, I don't wanna talk about this topic right now. But that's very, very difficult for some people to do. Why do you think it's hard for people to say no sometimes? Fear of disappointing someone else. Really, I think, especially with, with women being brought up to uh, sort of be a good girl and, you know, do what's expected. And then when everything, when more and more is asked of us, right, then we feel that, well, that's the expectation. And I think that that's something in today's world uh, where we're expected to bring 100% to work and 100% to home and 100% to our marriage and social lives and all of these things. And so- yeah, That's up to 500% now, I think. <laughs> and I think that's that's why people walk around feeling so overwhelmed because they sort of- depleted. Right, they don't know what they can say no to and what they have to say yes to. And there are things that seem and feel really important because it's a bridal shower or it's a kid's birthday. And who wants to be the person to say like, no, to that it doesn't feel good, but it also doesn't feel good to let's say wake up at you know 8 a.m. on a Sunday to travel to some to an event that's not convenient. I suppose a lot of it to me is about what people need to convince themselves that they're good people. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times that has to do with being overly self-sacrificing right. and considering normal needs as selfish correct which is a lot of times what we're taught yeah i think it really depends on the environment and it also depends on your models right because if your model was someone who worked 24 7 and you decide i'm going to take fridays off in the summer that's establishing something that's very different from what we have always felt to be acceptable that goes to what psychoanalysts call the super ego right Mm -hmm. Like we internalize the moral system of our parents and it is right and good to work 24 seven or maybe 23 six, you know, <laughs> okay. I just read an article which is uh, going a little bit viral in the news that Iceland piloted a four day work week and people work fewer hours. It's not, you know, you work 12 hours, four days a week instead of eight hours, five days a week or whatever. Mm -hmm. And they found that productivity was the same or better. And it's really cultural, you know, there's a recognition that American culture is particularly workaholic, especially in a place like New York or any big city uh, in the North, maybe especially, mm -hmm. maybe there's regional cultural differences. 
compared to Europe where, you know, people take like a month or two off in the summer. I saw a cartoon joke that was like European versus American, like vacation message. The European vacation message was very different. The American vacation message was like, out of the office today, actually it was it was about medical, yeah, medical issue, yeah. out of the office today for kidney surgery, but reachable by phone. <laughs> and the European message was like, I'll be back in a week. Yeah, and I think what's toxic about the sort of, you know, culture of overexertion and is really, I think people should be able to do what they want to do, but also not to sideline their own needs for too, like either too severely or for too long of a time. So when it interferes with regular eating and sleeping, you know, let's say, which a lot of doctors do during residency or a first year associate at a big law firm, right? They're not going to have time to sit down for three meals a day, but it's, you know, a, a sort of small snapshot of time. I think it sets the stage for really bad habits, but it's not meant to be forever and ever. What happens is it becomes systemic and then mm -hmm. there's a power differential and people are paralyzed, yeah. unable to change things or the culture that they're in, like of medicine or big law discourages people from trying to practice good self-care with some exceptions mm -hmm. because it's considered to not be a good worker. And then of course, you know, there's some future kind of promise of wealth or success. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but that's, I guess, less and less significant if we can't enjoy it because we can't actually take vacations, right? There's generational changes. Mm -hmm. There's generational differences. You know, it used to be much more a given that you just work hard and you do what you're told and, you know, that's how you, that's how you get rewarded and successful. But that kind of deal doesn't work as well nowadays. And I think, especially in the workplace, more people are aware about wellness. Mm -hmm. And there's more of a collective sense of joining together and refusing to follow that old pattern, which changes the power dynamics in terms yeah. of hiring. Right. I think it's a healthy thing because with things like LinkedIn, um, we can connect with people who may have worked someplace and find out in advance what the office culture is like. Yeah. Um, and you can look online and see what the average pay is. Right. You know, the secrecy is breaking down. And of yeah. course, yeah, we've seen that with social media as a tool for right. positive social change as well as, as negative events. Mm -hmm. But this in individual kind of problem-solving approach of becoming exploitable and subservient, when is it useful and when is it, you know, the function of an unhealthy, overly anxious or preoccupied attachment style mm -hmm. is trickier for the individual who's trying to figure out how to change their lives for the better. And again, mm -hmm. you were talking about sort of setting a rule, like I'm not going to check emails after seven. Mm -hmm. uh, but if it's urgent, you know how to reach me, you can, you can call my cell phone. Um, but I also think in the moment, there's recognizing what's happening at those moments when, when you have a choice, but you kind of don't know you have a choice. Mm -hmm. So when you're noticing something is fishy about an email or someone invites you or asks you to help them with something, 
and a little voice in your mind goes, that's not a good idea. Well, you, you, can't, you can't do that. It's too mm -hmm. much or the timing isn't good or last time I agreed to help out, um, it really didn't go well at all. Yeah. And it's learning to slow down, as you said, and also listen to all the different parts of oneself. Yeah. And think through a little bit what's likely to happen, right? And right. Tabletop it in your head a little bit. That's why it's helpful to say, you know, I, I don't know if I would say I'd love to help, but, you know, I'm not um, sure how available yeah. I am. Let me right. give that some thought. Right. Right. I think it would depend. Or even, you know, last time we tried to do something, as much as I value our friendship, didn't work out the way I hoped it would. Mm -hmm. Can we talk about it before, you know, we make a decision? There's a tendency, I guess you're pointing to that a lot of people are inclined to and are trained to be too agreeable. Yeah, or say yes to things that they might not want or they know they don't want. That then, they know they don't want. Yeah, sometimes it's, we say yes to something in the moment because it really does sound great. But then when it comes time to get together or time to get to work, it feels burdensome. Well, I think of that as people, they make a deal with their future self right. without their future self's consent. Exactly. But I think that's also how a lot of people get stuff done. They say, okay, I'll, I'll write that book chapter. Right. It sounds really good in the moment, but they know that they're not going to be into it, but they've committed themselves to do something mm -hmm. to other people. Right. And if we know we have a tendency to do that, we can say, you know, I'd love to be the type of person who said yes to writing a book chapter. <laughs> I'd love to. You, that's your favorite <laughs> expression. I would love to do that. But... I would love to be that type of person. But... I don't know how I'm going to feel. Would you love to be that March. type of person? <laughs> I would, but it's not really tell, telling someone I'd love to do something, you know, has a particular emotional impact. Right. I it's really, could... it's very positive for the other person right. for many people anyway. Yeah. And I think it expresses that we wish we could do it all. Right. Is I that wish... true though? Do you wish it... you could do it all? Yeah. I wish there were enough time for me to, read read more think more write more present take care of my patients take care of my kids take care yeah but that's just not reality right so yes i would love to have 30 <laughs> hours in every day or not need to sleep or eat but that's you know i just have to work with what i have yeah i mean i think a lot of people feel the way you feel though i think there's another there are other ways which are along the lines of, no, I, I don't wish <laughs> that, I, that I could give more and more and more and more and more. Okay, okay. Um, you know, I'm actually, I'm okay that I'm available in the ways that I'm available. And then, you know, the answer isn't, I'd love to do that, let me think about it. Mm -hmm. The answer might be, that isn't something I'm interested in, but thank you for thinking of me. Yeah, yeah, I think that is just a little bit tougher. Uh, it's harder for, for a lot of people. Yeah. And you're more likely maybe to get labeled negatively if you say, I'm not interested. You know, mm -hmm. no no offense, but it's not where my professional goals are right now. Yeah. A lot of people have trouble being um, candid in that way. 
uh, I see this sometimes in the parenting world when you try to make plans and people say yes, or they do this in business too. Yes, yes, yes. Mm -hmm. And then later on it's no, or they don't get back to you sometimes. A lot of times they do. Mm -hmm. This doesn't happen to me a whole lot, but when it happens, it's pretty remarkable. It leaves me often wondering whether the other person is being manipulative or not, whether they knew that they weren't interested and just it's not their style to say that doesn't work. It's like easier to say yes to someone's face and then mm -hmm. later on not answer a text or just say, oh, something came up or whether they were really interested, but they're weighing their different options. I got invited to do a, a radio spot, for example, for a, a fairly well-known outlet. Mm -hmm. And they messaged me. I said, sure, you know, it's a Sunday, but it's prestigious. It's an interesting subject. What time is it? And then pretty quickly, they messaged me back and they said, oh, well, I think my producer found someone else, but if it doesn't work out, can I have your phone number and we'll call? And yeah. my response was, oh, I don't, I don't want to be on call on the weekend, you know, in case you can't find someone else. Right. So you can email me at my email and I'd be more than happy to discuss whether there's any other topics that you'd like me to speak about with you. Yeah. But I definitely was thinking, uh-uh. Not something I'm interested in. Yeah. And I'm not going to be yeah. um, like seduced or glamorized right. because it's the media. Right. Yeah. And I think that's a tough thing. People have to be really sure that they're not missing some great opportunity. Because I think that a lot of the people who are, let's say, looking to exploit have tactics like, oh, I've got a I've got a great opportunity for you, or we'd love to have you do this. And, you know, it can be very seductive. People don't, the fear of missing out is, is powerful. Yeah. And people can definitely play on that. And also the implication sometimes is if you don't do this, you're stupid. <laughs> you know, it's such a good deal. And who wants to be stupid, right? Right. No, and who wants right. to be stupid? So <laughs> if you do what I want you to do, then you're a good, smart person. Right. And it gives you a self-esteem boost. But then later on, it is sometimes is regrettable, mm -hmm. particularly if you don't do your due diligence. This, this is a big topic in uh, Daniel Kahneman's work on thinking fast and slow. Uh, and it's true that people in marketing and advertising, they understand that there's two approaches generally. One of them is the people who are familiar with a subject will actually look at the information and weigh the information carefully in order to make a decision. So an ad will be more information dense for one readership, whereas people who aren't familiar will relate to the, the person in the ad, will resonate with the words that are written and basically make a snap decision about what to do, which if it works out, that's great. You know, you get something that works well for you, mm -hmm. but it it is, exploitative. Yeah. It's exploiting a psychological tendency to make a quick decision when certain emotional levers are pulled. And so one thing we talked about is having a set of rules. Another you mentioned is buying time and saying, mm -hmm. I need to think about it. Another is recognizing emotional states in the moment so that we can know who we are and then have more access to choices and decisions. Yeah. They often go hand in hand. I think 
that with this kind of thing, looking at a lot of the different tactics or strategies that people employ and then seeing what feels most comfortable, right? There's always a way to dial it back a little bit to be a little less available, a little less exploitable or agreeable. And sometimes it can even just be about, you know, how do we stop worrying about other people's feelings so much? Well, one way to do that is to think about our own feelings. There's um, a lot in there. Right. Being agreeable is is generally is generally productive for people, but when people are too agreeable, then that's a problem. Right. And how when do we need to agree with be agreeable to others versus be agreeable to what we ourselves want? If what we want to do is sleep in till 10 a.m., then maybe once in a while that's okay to do. That's more nuanced when agreeability right. is viewed as relative to me or someone else versus exactly. just a trait. Yeah. I think yeah. that's a good point. It relates to self-compassion right. and, and taking care of oneself versus feeling selfish all the time. It occurs to me the other thing, another thing that's kind of obvious is, is knowing what your limits are and knowing what you want ahead of time. That way you don't have to feel put on the spot, either feel like you're going to disappoint someone or go along with what they're saying and just refer to your own rules. Like, oh, you know, I set a rule for myself that I don't do anything after 3 p.m. on the weekend. That's me mm -hmm. time. Right. And I think for people who, wherever their sort of autonomy lies, so I guess when you're in a workplace, you don't always have control over your hours. You always have that choice, yeah. Right. But, but for when we do, I think <laughs> exercising it, you know, right. is, is good. Or sometimes even, you know, when I started practicing, I did have control, but people would be like, can I meet at 8am? And for a while, it was hard for me to say, oh, actually, I don't start till 11. Because the morning is what is, <laughs> I know, I know, I'm not a surgeon. Okay. Well, <laughs> I don't need to be in the OR. So it's, it's easy to overgeneralize or oh, a lot of people, mm -hmm. you know, I feel funny saying that, but having the freedom to choose is a goal that people right. can have. So if you choose to work in a corporate environment that you know has this type of dynamic, it's very different to try to set a limit about your work hours than if you work in an environment that credibly tries to balance employee health with the company's productivity needs. For sure. And I think that there are benefits and drawbacks to all of these things. You know, there are definitely times that I wish I could clock in at an office and, you know, have the benefits that go along with that, but we all make choices, right? So I think it's just, how do we make the choices that are consistent with, you know, with what our needs are in the moment? In some broader sense, I think it's important to value oneself a couple of years ago, um, I, I wrote a blog piece with Mark and Danny, my ear relationship co-authors called The Disposable Person. Mm -hmm. And I think our culture often treats people as you know widgets yeah. who can be replaced very easily. And companies often have a lot of churn, but it backfires because then people don't feel valued. And you know, rather than getting used up and tossed away, they're looking to switch to the next best thing. Yeah. before that happens. And so how do we really value ourselves in the culture that we're in, whatever that culture is, 
is a much bigger question. But there's this core issue of when there's an interpersonal problem, how do I approach it? Yeah, but I like your point about the disposable person and how we treat each other. And, and I do think that maybe that's for another day, though I'd love to um, keep talking. I'm not able to. <laughs> As always, it's a delight speaking with you. I'd love to talk for longer, <laughs> See? but I know we both have other obligations. I'm, actually, I'm not interested in continuing to talk. <laughs> <laughs> it's a role reversal. Nice. Uh, but thanks okay. for listening. And yeah. as always, send us your comments, requests, and we don't dislike positive reviews. Mm-hmm. Yes. And we value very much your time. So thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Doorknob Comments. We're committed to bringing you new episodes with great guests. Please take a moment to share your thoughts. We'd love it if you could leave a rating and review on your favorite podcast platform. You can also find us on Instagram at Doorknob Comments. Remember, this podcast is for general information purposes only and does not constitute the practice of psychiatry or any other type of medicine. This is not a substitute for professional and individual treatment services and no doctor-patient relationship is formed. If you feel that you may be in crisis, please don't delay in securing mental health treatment. Thank you for listening.